Welcome to yet another episode of the Renactors Corner. In this episode, we'll be discussing what is the best way to do an impression when historical documentation yields different answers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here with Lassa. How are you doing today, Lassa? I am uh, doing very fine. It's uh, it's a heat wave in Norway at the moment, so it's uh, kind of exhaustive to do anything. That's the summertime. We've had some warm weather here. It's a little bit cooler today, which is nice. I'll probably be outside later. Um, hopefully it won't be too, too bad out there. We've got kind of a different episode today. Um, it's going to be... A subject that I think is pretty complex and I think is uh, ideal for talking about on a podcast because I would much rather talk about it than like write about it because like I say it is complex and basically what we're going to talk about is how to figure out what is best for your reenactment impression when historical documentation is unclear or when it yields different answers. I think that's a very uh, interesting subject to discuss because it is a problem. It was actually, I think, suggested by one of our listeners, uh, which I appreciate because I think it's a good idea for... Uh, one of our patrons, actually. Okay, great. Some people are probably wondering, okay, well, like, what are you talking about? Like, historical documentation should always be the guide for an impression. Um, and, like, broadly, I agree with that. But depending on exactly what it is that you are trying to represent in a World War II perspective... A lot of times there is different things that you can choose, like historical documentation can be used to support a variety of different possible answers. And so you have to just make a choice. You have to choose what you want to do. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, it just comes down to the personal choice. And I think we could talk about choices that we've made or choices that we've seen others make and, and what the rationale behind that has been. Totally. I'll just I'm just going to start by saying what kind of what my background is on this kind of a thing. So the first reenactment unit that I joined, um, I was a member of that group for a long time, and we portrayed a Panzer Grenadier unit. It was actually a motorized Grenadier regiment, a Zug from this regiment, um, and the historical documentation from the late war period that we usually portrayed was pretty scarce, especially when the unit was founded. We had very, very little access. It was, I wasn't one of the founding members, but the people who started had very little access to uh, photos or specific documentation for, like, you know, 1944 era. And so what they did was they, they did some historical research and they found out, okay, this was a unit that was destroyed at Stalingrad and then was reformed in 1943 and sent first to Italy and then to France. And they just kind of did some some investigation and digging like, okay, well, what did German troops wear in Italy? What did German army units, German motorized units generally wear in France in the fall of 1944? And from that kind of came across 
the idea that it would just be like, okay, well, we're just going to do kind of a, a generalized portrayal that is uh, dialed into this one unit, but that it really has uniform and equipment standards that are sort of based on just France, 1944, a unit that was refit in 1943 in general. And so the decision was made to wear M43 caps, M the M43 or M42 field blouse, and uh, not to allow earlier patterns of uniforms, generally speaking. Now later, in doing historical, you know, additional research on this unit, we came across um, some information that, okay, well, they wore, there was some use of camouflage uniforms in this group, should we now start wearing camouflage uniforms? And eventually, uh, of course, there were lots, there were lots of photos that didn't show camouflage uniforms as well. So eventually it was kind of decided, all right, well, we're going to um, just kind of look at what is going on in reenactment, what kind of events we usually go to, how other people are you know, presenting their impressions at these events that we attend. And it's like, well, there's uh, a lot of camouflage gets used at these events on German army soldiers and um, maybe more camouflage than was present in the actual battles and the actual units that were being portrayed. So a decision was made to not wear any camouflage at all. No helmet covers, uh, only the Zeltbahn, the camouflage shelter quarter would be allowed as a... Uh, as a camouflage garment. And that was something that was rooted both in historical documentation and in, frankly, what was kind of an arbitrary decision to say, well, we think that camouflage is too overused. And even though historical documentation could be used to support wearing camouflage or not, we're going to choose with to not wearing it because we want to kind of be a counterpoint to something that we believe to be overused in the hobby. And that's, that's pretty much exactly kind of the thing that I'm talking about here. You know, an arbitrary decision that is based on uh, historical documentation that could be used to support different conclusions. I think that's a uh, good point. Um, I also like that you take into consideration what is the trend at the events you uh, attend as well. Yeah, you need to really kind of realize that um you know your impression and your unit is a part of the reenactment hobby in general and you kind of need to think about how it's going to fit in at events like realize that you're not just you know there's basically no unit that just reenacts just by themselves as a reenactor you and your unit will participate in reenactment events at which other units are present and you're kind of a the presence of your group offers a sort of a visual appeal to other groups and other reenactors are looking at you and your group as kind of a visual thing that um, makes it more authentic for them. You know, there are other units around. And so you want your the, the overall look of your unit to be a positive asset to the event in general. And so, you know, that can be that can be a factor that determines how you choose to present yourself. You know, Lassa, I know that you've participated in events um, with other units. I mean, do you guys try to, um, when you've came up with your unit impression, were you factoring in what other kinds of events you were going to be going to and, and what the impressions were at those events? 
not really, because when we started the, the unit, we were the um, basically the only re- German uh, reenactment unit in Norway, so we didn't really have a lot of stuff to consider. Um, we chose an armored reconnaissance unit, and uh, in hindsight, probably not the best idea, as a regular platoon requires some 13 or something half-tracks. But so we slowly started moving towards the Panzergrenadier uh, battalions of the same division. Um, so now we're kind of doing both of them. Um, but uh, certainly has a few issues with the um, with the missing half tracks and that you need so many. I think that's a good. That brings up a good point, which is that like your impression, even your unit impression, is not something that is set in stone. And that as you do more historical research, you might find that it's desirable to shift it a little bit to more uh, accurately line up with like what you're doing at events and the types of unit types of events that you're going to. Yeah, especially after we got to truck, uh, we started doing more uh, of the Panzergrenadier stuff. But even then, uh, the uh, Panzergrenadier divisions in the in the division, uh, the Ninth Panzer Division, were also mechanized, and you do sort of require half trucks too but there were we have seen some limitations and that trucks were being utilized even by the mechanized panzergrenadier units so we kind of do more of that but although it's not really too historical kind of but it's far better than missing the uh, two half tracks per squad of the armored reconnaissance unit have you given any thought to maybe like portraying a different unit or is that like totally out of the question uh, the thing we have uh, tended to do now is just to stick mostly with the uh, Panzergrenadier and sometimes the Panzeraufklärer, uh, the armored reconnaissance unit uh, impression. But also, as we do more events abroad, we usually uh, try to coordinate with the other units too as to what is being portrayed, and we adapt to that, be it infantry or uh, Panzergrenadier or something else. So we are... I should say more flexible event to event on what we portray than having a very specific uh, unit. But uh, on our events, we usually stick to the uh, Panzergrenadier stuff. I think that level of flexibility is really important and an asset. You know, um, it, it can be hard because, you know, on the one hand, I think it's great for a unit to have an identity, for a unit to have a brand that is its own. But on the other hand, if you are totally inflexible and incapable of presenting anything that's outside of a narrowly defined impression that you've crafted over time, it really limits what you can do. Sometimes it just doesn't fit in with the scenario you're uh, you're portraying or the event. And if you're not flexible, then you may be out of place or in worst case, not even allowed to attend the event. Um, sure. A good example uh, that comes up to mind is seeing the uh, SS soldiers on the beaches during the Kanye D-Day Ohio event. Yeah, that is a uh, that is a strange situation for sure. And you know, I understand that it's a big event, it's a big draw. There are um, SS units there that have a very strong unit identity, and you know that's the impression that they have and i'm i'm not knocking those people in any way but uh oh yeah yeah certainly you know, it, but it's more that it's um it's just somewhat out of place uh not uh, necessarily the most historical accurate stuff but it's certainly better than having 
no totally. Germans on the on the beachhead. That's true too. One of the points that I wanted to you know talk about today was that you just really need to think about what you're actually going to be doing at the events that you do, and I think that's something that it's possible to lose sight of. You know, when you're talking about your unit and and your own impression, um, you know, you're not like reenacting in a vacuum you're you're going to be doing something at an event and you definitely need to look at that event look at the events that you do and think about what your unit impression is and how you can make it as good as it can be for the specific events that you do sort of touching on that is i know i, I know some dutch reenactors who are making a or trying to restore a field kitchen and they're not restoring that field kitchen kitchen to have an impression of um, tank crewmen. They want to portray the field kitchen guys and do an impression around it and attend events with the task at hand of making food. That sounds really cool. I have a lot of respect for those kinds of impressions. It's not like your frontline cool action gung-ho impression, but it's, uh, it's something you don't see all the time. In a sense, you kind of almost have to pick one, you know, like uh, it's it's really hard, I think, if you're going to try to portray a frontline combat, um, you know, hard hitting assault platoon. And then you also have a field kitchen, right? Like these two things are kind of incongruous, you know, it's almost like, <laughs> you know, it becomes hard to bridge that gap. I mean, if you separate them and do it do each of those separate things at separate events, it works. But if you're trying to push all of that into the same event, then uh, that just doesn't work, at least from a historical accurate uh, perspective. Right. The cook The cook has an MP44 and is, like, defending the field kitchen, you know, in the foremost <laughs> lines. <laughs> um. <laughs> but... Going back to yeah. what you said about, you know, you could do field kitchen crew at one event and do the assault platoon at another event. I mean, that's, I think that's, you know, kind of speaks to the fact that when, that a reenactment unit is usually portraying something like that's much bigger than their own group. You know, the scale is so different. You could have a group that kind of portrays a division that has 20, 30, 40 guys, maybe. And a division should be hundreds, you know, more than a thousand people. And so you've kind of got to figure out how am I going to portray this massive formation with all of the equipment, all the men that they had with like a much smaller group. And of course, the way to do that is you are portraying a small, a very small section of a much larger thing but you can incorporate elements of that much larger thing. And it can be different elements, you know, every time or different elements for different events. I totally agree with that. And I think it's also important not to have like a gazillion different impressions, but to have like one main one for your unit, but being flexible to uh, do other ones as well if needed. But uh, not having like a closet full of a like 10 different impressions just in case an event requires it. I have seen at least one unit that I know of that had an unbelievable amount of buy-in for having like very different and separate uniform guidelines for every event that they did. And it was pretty impressive 
because they would have an event and everybody would be wearing an M36 tunic. And then at a, at a different event, everybody would be wearing a, an M43 tunic. And it's like, all of these guys have two jackets, you know, like. <laughs> That's actually really cool. It was extremely cool. It was extremely cool, but that the numbers of that unit like declined, and you know I don't think that they're showing up in uh, large numbers or really doing much in the way of events anymore. And I can't help but wonder if basically asking people to have like every model of of jacket and hat that were used in the Wehrmacht might be kind of like a unit killing strategy in a way. You know, it might turn a lot of people off. I believe so. I think so. Uh, having uh, having a huge buy-in is a problem, and uh, in my unit, we're currently expanding into early war, uh, but it's going to be an optional uh, side impression, so to speak. Uh, but uh, I've I've been trying very hard to do some historical research to find a unit in the early war. In this case, the invasion of Norway, uh, Untenem and Vesselhuben, uh Trying to find a unit that uh, was refitted very shortly before the invasion so they don't have the double decal helmets and the m36 tunic and the stone grade trousers so the buy-in for my members in my unit will be cheaper because they wouldn't necessarily need um everything different so to speak sure have you have you found a unit like that yet yeah there was a unit that um was uh, partially sunk uh, on the uh, German pocket uh, cruiser, uh, pocket battleship uh, Blücher. And um, they seem to have been refitted with uh, very new gear uh, the days after the invasion. That's cool. Um, this That really kind of speaks to the whole point of this where, you know, you're going to be portraying early war invasion in Norway and there you can find historical documentation to support very different looks for German army soldiers in that same place and time, depending on what unit they were in. Yeah, exactly. And that way, if if somebody really want to go wild and spend a lot of money on the uh, early war look, so to speak, it is possible. But if people want to cheap out kind of, they can keep their uh, field grade trousers. Maybe if they have an M40, they can keep that as well, uh, the tunic. A helmet, if they got a m40 with a single decal it can be used as well so it kind of saves a lot of money for the optional kit that's cool but then then comes the minus of uh, not uh, necessarily looking like your stereotypical early war soldier though well that i think that can be a good thing you know because uh look every every unit has to differentiate itself from other units in some way so um you know you've You've, you're picking a, a very kind of a specific um, look that is going to be, I think, probably will wind up being relatively unique to the impression that you guys choose to do, um, portraying a, a 1940 unit that was widely refitted in 1940. Um, and I think that's really kind of a cool niche and something to focus on. There's, there's already units that do early war or pre-war reenacting and have everyone wearing exactly the same model of stuff, all pre-war stuff. Um, so it's cool to try to do something that is a little bit of a, of a different take on, on a similar thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I'm looking forward to it, but I said it won't be a, um, 
mandatory thing in the unit. It's more of a side impression. And it gives us further um, further flexibility as well in both eras and what to portray. My unit's been working on some side impressions as well, including like an earlier side impression. Um, our main impression allows us... What we like make people buy, the mandatory kit list, enables people to do anything from the middle of 1942 through the end of the war. Um, and now we've got people working on doing being able to do 1941 or, or even earlier than that. And there are some people who, in the unit who say, well, um, you know, why don't we, uh, why don't we just make this mandatory and make everybody buy the stuff? But the reality is, is that as of yet, there's not any event that we do that absolutely requires, like we're not doing any 1941 events. We've never done a 1941 event. And maybe if we get enough people doing the optional side impression and we could have a a 1941 immersion event, maybe that would get some other people off the fence and get them to buy a cap with the branch piping on it or whatever. But, you know, right now I've got people, other people asking me, okay, well, how is a 1941 unit-only immersion event going to be substantially different? How is it going to feel different? How is what we actually do going to be any different from doing a 1943 event? And the reality is I, I don't really think it would be that different. You know, so I, I just, I don't think it necessarily makes sense to mandate everybody to buy uh, additional uniform items just so that we can portray a different look if the event itself is going to be the same. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And we had uh, sort of like a case in point situation last summer where we uh, did a tactical with uh, the uh, Norwegian um, interwar unit in Norway uh, where we had a sort of Innovation of Norway event. But as we didn't have any early war kit, we just basically portrayed an, uh, a, uh, a 1944 unit in Normandy, but against Norwegian soldiers in 1940. Because the truth of the matter is that, apart from the how the kit looks, there isn't anything else that is different about it. And although it it is sort of far beyond everything, everybody ended up having a good time. Uh, and this is like the farbiness of it is what we're trying to mandate by uh, now introducing the uh, early war side impression too, so we can uh, uh, sort of play with our friends in the woods in the, with the Norwegian guys more. Sounds great. I love that approach. It's like you didn't let the fact that it wasn't going to be perfect prevent you from doing something that was good. And then you did it and figured out a way to improve on it to make it more realistic and better for the future. Yeah, I mean, uh, the uh, the uh, shovel covers would be black instead of tan on some of the guys. The the unfolded edge on the M42 helmets would be sort of uh, wrong. But I mean, fundamentally, there's absolutely no difference um, on a reenactment tactical uh, level. Right. You could make you could say, well, theoretically, you know, in 1944, they would have uh, different weapons or whatever. But the reality is, is that you could have a squad in 1944 or in 1940 equipped with an MG 34 and rifles. And it would be totally correct for either period, you know, depending on exactly what unit is being portrayed. Yeah, uh, we did actually bring our MG 34 instead of the MG 42. 
uh, just to have it somewhat more. So we tried to make it like as early war as possible, but we didn't really uh, shed a tear over it, so to say. And our MG34 is actually stamped 1945, so that is kind of wrong too. Sure. I have the same thing. I have a, a I have a dummy MG34 that's one of the 1945 ones. It has a later war finish. You know, it is... Uh, I use it for stuff where we don't actually have to fire, so not like tacticals. But the, uh, you know, the appearance isn't totally correct for pre-1944, really. Yeah, and then comes the question, how deep do you really want to go? Would the uh, later uh, barrel bands on the K-98 be a problem if you're doing early war? We're, we're looking at that kind of stuff right now. You know, when the uh, cupped butt plate of the K-98 was introduced, you know, that limits what we can do to an extent. But, you know, I, like thinking back about your Norway 1940 event with later war stuff, I bet the fact that you guys did that event and it was fun is going to be a good motivator to get people to um, get the stuff that they need to make it more correct the next time. Whereas if you had just waited and not done it and then said, well, why don't we get a 1940 impression going in case, you know, someday we'll do a 1940 event with these with this uh, other Norwegian group. It, you might have had less enthusiasm than than you might be getting from people who did it, loved it and are now like, all right, that was fun and I want to do it better next time. Yeah, um, everybody wants to redo the tactical because it was a hell of a lot of fun. We're currently kind of banging our heads against this issue a little bit in my group right now because we portray a Sikharung unit. It was a rear area unit that had a low priority in supply. And when we started the group, we found all of this documentation that the soldiers were irregularly equipped. They had obsolete and captured weapons. They had uh, obsolete and captured uniforms and gear items, uh, paramilitary gear items in use. I mean, we found uh, photos that show soldiers in, you know, all kinds of crazy configurations with different types of weapons and ammo pouches. And so we thought, all right, well, we want to differentiate ourselves from a standard infantry unit, which we are not. And we want to really dial in to this specific Sikharung branch portrayal. So we allowed people to get you know, the type of obsolete captured uh, equipment that we saw in the original photos. Um, but part of the problem that we faced now, a few years later, is that there are almost unlimited types of obsolete and captured and um, paramilitary type stuff that appears in these photographs and in documentation about these unit types. And... So our members are able to buy and wear an almost infinite variety of objects, which in theory, that's great because the historical documentation supports these objects being there. But in reality, we're only a very small group. We, we field maybe eight guys at an event, maybe only four guys. And if every sing, if, if no two people in the group are basically wearing the same uniform or have the same type of equipment. I mean, it just, it becomes too much. It becomes almost a, a parody, you know, it gets carried out to a level that's absurd. And the reality is, is that I can find 
abundant photos and documentation to show Sikharung troops that are relatively uniformly equipped. You know, maybe there's a, maybe they're using a Czech VZ-24 instead of a K-98 rifle or something like that, but maybe they're all using the VZ-24 or they all have Czech ammo pouches or whatever. You know, so it's, it's not like every man in the squad looks very visibly different. So we're now trying to figure out, is it desirable to have a more uniform look? Uh, you know, what do we lose from having a more generic sort of a look versus do we gain something in authenticity from that? I mean, and, and you know, like I say, there's plenty of historical evidence to support either way that you wanted to go with it. Um, and I think maybe we might have we might have taken a few steps too far in the direction of being totally irregular. Um, but where do you draw the line and how how uniform you want to be without being so uniform that it would be wrong, that becomes kind of arbitrary. You know, it becomes, um, there's some personal preference and, and subjectivity that comes into play there. So, um, you know, we're, we've been talking about it a significant amount and it's, I don't, I don't know exactly what the answer is going to be. Of course, it doesn't, doesn't help that we don't actually have any real events right at this moment to plan for that, we could look at in a more concrete way and think, well, what what kind of impression are we going to portray at this specific event? So, um, you know, that's an aspect of it too. Yeah, I I think it's important that even though the uh, research shows that everybody's wearing almost like anything, it's important to have some kind of unit coherency uh, when it comes to kit instead of just saying or just having a free-for-all on kit, because that can get uh, bad, too. Right. I mean, you know, this, this again, this is going to be kind of subjective, but there are photos, not in the majority, right, of just German units that are some kind of ragtag Kampfgruppe that has uh, soldiers wearing widely differing uniforms and equipment. And, you know, you could argue, using these photos, that it's not technically wrong for a, re a reenactment group to do that. But I don't think that it is a typical look of probably any unit, really. I don't think it's a very representative look when we're talking about the German military in World War II in general. And I also don't think it's a very good look. I think that it, it looks, it comes across looking you know, frankly, kind of sloppy and undisciplined. It doesn't look very impressive. And, you know, I understand that they were sloppy and undisciplined German army units, but when you're trying to put your best foot forward as a reenactor, as a reenactment group, you're trying to look realistic. You're trying to look like you're a trained and coherent, uh, cohesive unit. And having everybody wearing something different doesn't, uh, doesn't benefit that goal, I don't think. Yeah, but then comes the... Like, that is also sort of a can of worm because uh, you're saying that you shouldn't necessarily follow historical documentation to uh, look your best to other reenactment units, too. Well, like, that, you know, that this is like what I was talking about, where this, this is a really a very kind of complex and nuanced subject. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is. Because... 
if you're if you're portraying a reenactment group, if you're or, I'm sorry, if you're portraying a real Wehrmacht unit, and all of your documentation suggests that every man in your ten man squad should be wearing a different uniform. Well, you don't really have any choice at that point. You have to go with that. That's what's rea- that's what's realistic. But taking a step back from that a little bit, you chose that unit that you're portraying for some reason. Why did you choose it? Did you choose it because that was the unit that fought in the majority of the you know actions that your reenactment group is going to be portraying at events that you go to? Or did you choose it because you wanted to be the group where every single guy is wearing a different uniform? You know, and if and if that's the unit that you chose for that reason, was that the best choice, really? You know, ultimately, uh, personal choices and, and unit choices play a role in this. People will pick what they like the best. And on some levels, that's wrong. But on other levels, literally everybody does this. Every unit does this. Everybody chooses to do this. No one gets drafted into a reenactment group, right? So if you... Um, you know, there's in, in every kit, there are going to be things that you have chosen. Even if it's just what kind of socks you wear or what kind of, whether you wear socks or foot wraps may come down to just a personal choice. Um, you know, what your handkerchief looks or what you carry in your pocket. These are things that are, are choices. And, um, you know, you really kind of have to balance using historical documentation with making the right choices or sometimes just making choices based on your own your own personal taste honestly that's the reality yeah and sometimes you don't really have the historical uh research to prove something or to even show anything so you kind of have to do like an education educated guess too so the unit that i'm portraying sikhrung's regiment 195 we've been portraying this unit for six years I haven't found a single photograph that I know for a fact shows men in this unit. Not one photo. So th- there have to be, you know, best guesses that come into play. There have to be um, decisions made to fill in the blanks. I was very, very, very fortunate. Shortly after we started the group, I found one Soldbuch of a guy who was in that unit. And... The Soldbuch, which was the personal identification document that every German soldier carried, has within it a list of everything that the soldier was issued. So in this Soldbuch, I can look and say, okay, this is what this person had when he was in Sikhrung's Regiment 195. And it doesn't necessarily say, okay, well, specifically what model of field cap or what model of field blouse this guy had. But it tells me, you know, what kind what kind of equipment that he had in general, and there's information in that. And there's information in that that we have used to craft our portrayal. Um, but this guy had a French rifle and bayonet. And so, you know, can we then... I guess the soul book entry just says French rifle. It does, and it, it, that's exactly right, it does. So it doesn't, we don't know exactly what kind of rifle that it was. Um, and... Would it make sense to mandate that everybody in the unit gets, 
you know, a, a, an arbitrarily chosen model of French rifle? Uh, I don't think that it necessarily does. And so, you know, that's kind of a, an authenticity compromise that we've made where we're portraying a Sikhrung's unit. We're using the type of weapons that a Sikhrung's unit likely would have had, generally speaking. But what we're actually using is actually at odds with the only historical documentation that we've been able to find that is specific to the unit that we, you know, that we supposedly portray. I mean, that get, that kind of gets back to another thing where when you when you portray a unit, you're probably not going to actually really be portraying that unit at every event that you do. Um, if you're portraying uh, a unit that wasn't at D-Day, like if your impression, if your unit portrays a unit that was not present at D-Day and you participate in a D-Day event, you know, you have to make a decision between portraying a unit that wasn't at D-Day versus changing your portrayal so that you can portray a unit that was there. Uh, which is what a lot of units, a lot of units will do. That's kind of what we did too with the uh, portraying the Ninth Panzer Division. Is that uh, they didn't arrive in Normandy until the uh, just be, probably just as the Falaise pocket uh, closed, but we can still reenact earlier uh, or beachhead Normandy because uh, the kit isn't that different either. But if you're portraying like a specific uh, units like the Großdeutschland who really weren't in Normandy, apart from like some uh, limited action, then uh, you're, you really can't do uh, Normandy. Either you can't do it or, or you just have to do it, you know, knowing that you're, you're comp- you have to compromise on authenticity because you're just portraying a, a unit that wasn't at the event that you're at. Or just having a spare jacket or tunic, but uh, then again, that is more money and more buy-in, but... Uh, Depends on what your unit kind of want to do, too. You know, when, when we started uh, 195, we made a conscious decision be like, okay, well, this unit identity, this unit designation, Sikhering's Regiment 195, that's going to be our brand, and that's going to be our identity as a reenactment group. But we are going to make sure that our portrayal can be shifted so that we can portray Sikhering units that were on any front you know, at almost any time. Um, because really, when you look at the orders of battle for uh, so many different sections of World War II, so many different army groups and, and fronts, um, you see that these type of units, Landeschutzen and Sikhering's units, they were there. Um, so when we're going to do an event that we haven't done before, we will look at what the scenario is, you know, what the historical time and place is, and then do a little bit of research to find a an appropriate unit that was there that we can portray. And we will then maybe try to do a little bit of research to see if there's anything specific about that unit that we can dial in on so that our portrayal of that one particular unit can be informed by historical documentation in that way. But frankly, that's that's very rarely possible to find that kind of doc- documentation. You know, usually it's just more like a mental framework. Okay, we're portraying such and such a Sikhrung's Bataillon, say, you know, that was that was in this battle. And we just use what we know about this branch and these type of units in general to portray it at whatever event that we happen to be at. Yeah, and I think that's the, uh, like, that's the point here is that when you don't really have any uh, specific historical research to one specific unit, you just kind of have to look at 
other units that are similar or even more or less identical in task and role and uh, setup and just kind of go from there. That's a great point. The unit that I used to be in, we portrayed uh, a subunit of the 3rd Grenadier Division. And it was hard to find uh, a lot of information about that specific unit at first, although eventually we wound up finding tremendous amounts of it. But we did find early on, we found a lot of documentation that was connected to the 15th Grenadier Division. And these were two units that had almost the exact same... Uh, sort of combat battle history at the same time as each other. You know, very, there was very strong similarities. These were units that had been in Italy the uh, entire beginning and summer of 1944 and then were transferred to Normandy in the, uh, like, August-September 1944 period to stem the breakout in Normandy. And then they've continued to fight against the Western allies as they got pushed back into Germany. And we, we were kind of able to extrapolate information about the 3rd Division based on what we could learn about the 15th Division because they had the same type of history. And later, when we found more and more and more information about the actual unit that we portrayed, it it did actually prove you know the the kind of assumptions that we had gathered from looking at this other similar unit, you know, prove them to be true. Um, so that's, that's an approach that I think is a, is a worthwhile one to take. Yeah. And that's kind of what we've been doing with the ninth Panzer division too, because despite being a uh, pretty major part in, uh, in many battles in world war two, the, uh, historical, uh, uh, material available is surprisingly very limited. But I but I do have some photos of some of the battalions in the in the division that I know is from uh, that division, and those can kind of give me like a hint on what kind of gear the unit was set up with, or the entire division, so to speak, and therefore also give like a sort of like a hint to uh, how uh, how well equipped the uh, division was, and therefore I can sort of like dial in more or less how. Uh, what kind of kit to set up the uh, unit or or the reenactment unit to as well? That's great. Yeah, the, even sometimes just like single photographs can be such gold in that department. You know, a a photograph that you can tie to a specific unit, even even just one photo can be at least one like data point that you can use to make these kind of decisions or or to make some of them right. Yeah, and even if you're going to, for example, portray a pioneer unit of uh, of a certain division, but the only photo you can find from the division is of the anti-air battalion, the, it can still sort of give you some help to see like how well-equipped that battalion was, because then there's a uh, big probability that the entire division was equipped uh, more or less on the same level too, and therefore can give you sort of a hint to... Uh, how the pioneers were as well yeah it's a clue you know it's at least a clue and it's some it's better than than absolutely nothing at all exactly Um, and then you have to look at other uh pioneer photos to sort of give a hint on how those were too and it's a it's a big puzzle and a lot of educated guessing yeah look you can look at pictures that show like uh, recently captured prisoners 
from the from the battles that that unit fought in, you know, and, and you don't know if you, you there's no way of knowing what unit those men that you're looking at were in, but you can get an idea about at the very least how units in that particular front at that time in that particular battle how they were equipped, you know, how they looked, and yeah, and exactly, you can maybe make some decisions based on that. And I'll tell you, perf- to be perfectly honest, I don't I don't have really much of a problem with looking at a unit and knowing that they made maybe some of these arbitrary decisions just for the purposes of a look, you know, because you're, you're trying to represent something that's like much larger than yourself. Your individual impression is part of a unit impression and your unit impression is a part of the reenactment hobby at large. So I think there can be value in saying, okay, well, we want to portray um, late war, a late war unit that, has not gotten resupplied in a long, long time and has really ragged gear and, and really, uh, you know, reissued, worn out uniforms. Um, because that is a look that you can see a lot if you look at the newsreels, if you look at late war photos, but it can be kind of hard necessarily to pin that down to a specific unit, really. So it's more like a, a sort of a, I don't know, a mode, right? Or just like a, like I say, a look. Um, that people can go for and I think I think that that look can be cool or on the other hand uh, a freshly refitted unit that is wearing all the newest model late war stuff it's relatively new it hasn't seen a lot of use maybe they're a unit that's like fresh into combat at that time uh, that can be also a cool look and and, and it's pot you know in some divisions you might have had uh, one regiment, that has been in constant, or say one company, right, that's been in constant combat for weeks, and then another uh, another company that was depleted and was taken out and kept in reserves and was refitted. So you've got two companies in the same regiment that have a completely different look, you know. So I don't think it's totally unreasonable to to just kind of try to mix a combination of historical documentation and then just like, okay, well, what exact type of unit, what unit look do we want to represent? Yeah, exactly. And then you have the late war uh, mixes of units too, like the uh, different Kampfgruppers. And then if your unit has a flexible impression, um, uh, what should you say, uh, being flexible on, on impressions, you can really nail down a certain Kampfgruppe look as well with with people from uh, or soldiers from different branches fighting as one as well if you're talking like very late war no i agree of course then the problem is that you kind of have to draw a subjective line again there too because you know i think there are probably uh, late war units that were just like an ad hoc mixture of um army rear area guys luff off ground troops and uh you know, maybe Kriegsmarine recruits without a boat anymore or something, right? And if if you've got four guys going to the event and two of them are in SS uniforms with camouflage and one of them is a in a sailor uniform and one of them is, you know, in a in an early war army uniform, it's just going to be, I think it's going to look like a disaster, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, we actually did an event this weekend. Uh, I won't touch too much on that, but... We portrayed April 1945, and we did a uh, sort of a Kampfgruppe mix uh, late war. And we basically did 
the ninth Panzer Division, as is our main impression. But we did a mix of Aufklärung and uh, Panzergrenadier mixed um, into the, well, more or less the same squad. And that made it uh, similar, but uh, also different, because the Panzergrenadiers had access to STG-44, so some guys had that, but the Aufklärung didn't necessarily have that, so... It gave a sort of different look, but uh, not as widely different as um, SS in camo and a Kriegsmarine guy, for, ex for example. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, and I guess uh, I guess that's pretty much, we probably talked this into the ground at this point. Uh... <laughs> it's hard to get a definite answer on this. It's just more like tread carefully in the, in the impression jungle so to say i mean this is kind of a lot to think about right i think about this kind of stuff a lot we talk about this stuff in my unit we debate about it you know and i hope that uh for the people listening it's given them some perspective and and something to think about you know obviously like i say this whole thing is about kind of arbitrary decisions opinions subjective feelings and there's not necessarily one right answer you know so if you're listening to this and you disagree with every opinion that I've said, um, that's, that's fine because you can have totally different approaches that are, that are both correct, both equally correct. And, and I guess that's kind of what, what the point is yeah. of this whole thing. All right. On that note, uh, I hope everybody out there is, uh, doing great. Stay safe out there. Be careful. And, uh, Lassa and everybody else, I will see you in the field. I'll see you in the field, Chris. But before we leave, we would like to thank our patrons for for their fantastic support. Um, the patrons are Alexander, Brian, Casey, Corey, Daniel, Dustin, Gunter, Juan, Manuel, Paul, Wilhelm, Sean, and Steve. Thank you so much. Uh, your support means a lot for us. Thanks again to Mike aka Retroman for editing this podcast.